0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca-bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Mark Whedon for a conversation about the Hittites civilization, a society that was significant during the Bronze Age that existed in the Anatolia Peninsula. And this civilization of people have been of uh, much interest to many scholars over the years. Dr. Whedon is Senior Lecturer SOAS at the University of London. He's the author of many publications over the years, including the books Hittite Logograms and Hittite Scholarship. And as another example, the book Hittite Landscape and Geography. Welcome to the call, Mark. Hi there. So who were the, um, uh, the Hittites? What, what was the Hittite uh, civilization?
1: Yeah. um, Well, let's start off with the word Hittite, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because that's basically a word that we've made up. Um, They didn't call themselves the Hittites. They called themselves the people of Hatti, I suppose, or the people of Hattusa, in fact, which was their capital city. Mm -hmm. So the Hattusans might be the best way to designate them. But we call them the Hittites because the Hittites or Hittim occur in the Bible. So, um, you know, King David encounters Uriah Uriah the Hittite and there's that whole episode in the Bible about um, how he fancies his wife, doesn't he? And then he uh, sends him off into the battle and he gets killed. Mm. Um, So those are the um, Hittim from the Hebrew Bible. And in the 19th century AD, um, various people thought, well, these Khitim must have uh, been quite important and um, existed somewhere other than in the bi- biblical text. Mm-hmm. And um, a number of scholars started associating inscriptions in a hieroglyphic script that were found in northern Syria, in Hama, and um, at places across, uh, one place in western Anatolia. Mm-hmm. Uh, right on the Anatolian coast um, with this civilization and they called them the Hittites so taking this biblical designation and applying it to phenomena that would be that they were observing from Syria over to uh, to uh, Western Anatolia and pretty soon they started um, associating the ruins at this site called Boazkoy which is right in central Anatolia in in the center of Turkey on the Anatolian plateau with this civilization Hmm. on the basis of uh, a sort of pottery that was found there. And there was bits of this theory that were right and bits that were wrong. Um, So the Hittim of the Bible turned out to be much actually much later than the people we nowadays refer to as Hittites. Hmm. Um, And these hieroglyphic inscriptions were in fact quite a bit later as well they'd been noticing, or some of them were anyway. And uh, what we now think of the, what we now call the Hittites are the people who were ruled by this capital city with its centre in central Anatolia called Hattusa, modern day Boaz Kale, or Boaz Kui as it was about 100 years ago when it first got excavated. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's it's a political term rather than an ethnic term i would say hittites it in that it designates this um this uh, this empire as it became that was ruled by uh, that was ruled from hattusa hmm. it's a bit like saying the romans for rome you know that's a, it's a civilization that extended from a city mm-hmm. um and so yeah hattusans would actually be a more accurate way of describing them but you know <laughs> if you not many people have heard of the Hittites for, for, for a start. If we started calling them the Hattusans, then no one would know what we were talking about at all. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> so what we now think the situation is, is that we have this um, kingdom that grows up, let's say in the first half of the uh, second millennium BC
0: mm-hmm.
1: in central Anatolia, um, Gradually unifying what was previously a loose network of competing city-states into a more territorial unit, Um, and around 1600 BC, um, let's say, or the mid 17th century BC, they established their capital at this city of Hattusa, this site of Hattusa, right in the centre of the Anatolian plateau, Mm. and that then develops into an empire from there with various stops and starts it's not a linear development you know that they they get uh, Mm. they establish their kingdom they establish their capital city and then they just expand Um, they had a lot of problems with actually establishing an imperial presence throughout Anatolia and eventually into Syria but they eventually managed to do it um and say from around um what 1350 BC onwards we can talk about a hittite empire mm. where they've got influence over most of anatolia um and also expanded into northern syria and that lasts until around 1200 BC which is the time we refer to as the collapse of the late Bronze Age um, and the beginning of the Iron Age. Hmm. So the Iron Age starts, we conventionally say, around 1200 BC because a lot of the larger civilizations, um, empires, imperial entities or palace-based cultures, let's call it that, palace-based cultures that were around at the time um start to disintegrate around 1200 bc mm-hmm. and the hittite capital at hattusa is is deserted around this time and so we we lose track of them but what seems to happen once um once the iron age gets going after about 200 years you have this period of uh, pretty obviously a period of economic decline. It's sometimes referred to as uh, Dark Ages. But by the time you get to, um, say, about 1000 BC, people in northern Syria especially, but also some people in um, in central Anatolia are still using the Hittite hieroglyphic script, which was event- was originally used to identify who the Hittites were, as it were. So this is the one thing that kind of survived the main thing that survived of Hittite culture. And we refer to this period in the Iron Age as the Neo-Hittite period, Hmm. Um, although a lot of people dispute that um, characterization. But yeah, so there's a kind of afterlife of the Hittite Empire, which uses the same some of the same scripts that they used and um, also a language called Luwian um that they that they used to write hieroglyphic inscriptions um and so yeah it but but it's not an empire anymore mm. it's like um small city-based states again that um are have overlapping interests but sometimes are warring against each other mm. um and we we uh encounter them particularly in opposition to other powers at the time like the assyrians and people like that. Mm. So yeah, the Hittites are around mainly in this time of the, you know, the, the, the main Hittite imperial period is around the second half of the second millennium BC and they're neighbours with people like Egypt. So, you know, if you've heard of Egyptian history, you've probably heard of Ramesses Second. you know, and so Ramesses Second mm. is... Um, one of the um, enemies fought by the Hittites the Hittites fought a big uh, battle against the Egyptians at uh, Kadesh when was it I think 1274 BC or something like that Um, and the Egyptians said that they won and the Hittites said that they won you know Mm. it's that usual kind of thing but um, um, yeah so so they come into the purview let's say of um, a lot of the other big civilizations of the time that people tend to know about from the history books more, so mm. they were in contact with the Babylonians they were in contact with the Assyrians, and they're on the same kind of level it's sometimes referred to as a, a club of great powers mm. you know they were they were the the major powers of the time the Hittites, the Babylonians assyrians and the Egyptians. And that um and they, they all communicated with each other as well.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean that's that's what I'd say for a basic introduction to who they were for people who've never heard of them kind of thing.
0: And an excellent introduction as well. Thank you for that. Um when the Hebrew Bible is translated to English, um going back to one of your comments about uh it appearing in in, in the Bible, um is it are these people referenced as uh, Hittites or Hittusan?
1: Hittim, I think the word oh, is. Uh, I mean, forgive my Hebrew pronunciation, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it's hit, and that's that's where um, the British translation is uh, comes from is mm. Hittites. Okay. I'm not quite sure how you get from hit team to Hittites, but that's what happened. Yeah. Um, okay. And yeah, you're quite right. That's in the translation. That's in the process of translating the Hebrew Bible. Basically, that, that came about. Okay. And you had all this discussion going on in the 19th century about how the Bible was composed, and um, you know there was there was there was uh, this this what's it called source criticism or New criticism or whatever the school of Julius Wellhausen has referred to at some, at some points where uh, um, where um, you know analyzing the biblical text and saying uh, this source was responsible for this particular part of the Bible and this source was responsible for this other part of the Bible Mm. and um, this was associated with a movement that said that uh, well a lot of the things that are said in the Bible are anachronistic or they're just not true, they don't refer to anything and this kind of stuff and so Mm. some of the scholars who were associated with establishing that the Hittites existed were wanting to intervene in this debate. They were wanting to, so Arch, Reverend Archibald Says, for example, is the person who's usually uh, credited with having discovered the Hittites. Hmm. Um, and you know, he's the Reverend Archibald says because he was a reverend. Um, and there was another one called, um, Wright as well. who was also a reverend who was out as a missionary in, um, in, uh, in, well, Syria, Palestine, mm-hmm. in the Ottoman Empire. And um, these people were very much motivated by the desire to say, yes, well, what the Bible says is true, you know? And uh, the arguments that they used in order to say that there were these people called the Hittites were all actually completely wrong, but they were right that there mm-hmm. was this this um, this culture mm. Um, and state that was based at Hattusa that obviously was somehow, that found an echo in the texts that are written about in the Bible, in the texts that are written in the Bible uh, referring to the Hittim. Mm.
0: Their uh, language at the time, the hieroglyphs that they were writing in, Mm. is there any uh, known etymological roots to, to that language?
1: Well, let's, let's step back a bit. Um, so, right, we've got the hieroglyphs, and that was the first thing that got noticed, basically, mm-hmm. right? So they were the, in the town of Hama, there were these hieroglyphic stones. Various European travelers had seen them. Mm-hmm. And then this right character went out there and, uh, and um, tried to uh, organize with the local Ottoman authorities uh, to get them transferred to Istanbul,
0: hmm.
1: um, which is where they are now. And so these, these hieroglyphs were what were seen first. Now, they're actually written in a language called Luwian, which is closely related to the Hittite language, Mm -hmm. to the language of most of the documents we have from the capital city at Hattusa. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, these documents are not in hieroglyphic. They're in a script called cuneiform, which is basically composed of wedge-shaped impressions that are made on clay. Right. So they wrote on clay tablets and they made wedge-shaped impressions. I don't know. I can give you some photos if you want that you can show. And this cuneiform script was used throughout the Middle East, uh, developed in southern Iraq in around 3,400 BC. Mm. And it's used all over the Middle East. And in Egypt, they're using it as well in order to communicate with the Babylonians and the Syrians and the Hittites. So um, it's very widely spread. And at Hattusa... They used this cuneiform script, among other languages, to write um, Hittite, the language we call Hittite. Mm. They had a different name for it, but let's Mm. not go down that road. Um, Now, that language, Hittite, was recognized fairly early on to be um, a direct relative of Indo European languages. So, it was noticed fairly early on. Uh, the first, Among the first um, Hittite texts in cuneiform that were noticed were um, were some of these tablets that were found, clay tablets that were found in Tel Alamana in Egypt. And they turned out later to be correspondence between um, the Egyptian king Akhenaten and various other, and um, Amenhotep the Third and the great kings of the uh, period Mm. and it was noticed that a couple of these were in an unidentified language and that they had um, greeting formula which seemed to resemble that contained words and pronouns and stuff like that that seemed to resemble indo-european languages Mm. so like you was two and this kind of stuff or Mm -hmm. Or whatever it was, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, after, so that was sort of noticed around 1900, uh, but it wasn't until 1916 that a Czech um, scholar called uh, Bedrik Hrozny actually managed to identify in a systematic fashion that these cuneiform documents um, that were found at Hattusa were mostly written in this language that was basically an Indo-European language. So, related to English, Mm. German, French, Sanskrit, um, you know... uh, Latin. Latin, Mm -hmm. exactly, Mm -hmm. Greek. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so it was very closely related. And from there, it was easy to decipher what the text said, because Mm. we can read cuneiform, and by that period, by around 1900, cuneiform had been deciphered, you know, and you could read it, but you just didn't know what the language was that they were writing in Hattusa. Hmm. In Iraq, they were using cuneiform to write Akkadian, which is a Semitic language, and Sumerian, which is a uh, isolate. But um, And people were beginning to decipher those, hmm. but um, from the fact especially that Akkadian is related to Hebrew and all the rest of it, and Arabic. Um, but with Hittite no one really knew what was going on. And then Mm. suddenly it was recognized, yes, this definitely is an Indo-European language. So the Hittite word for water is Wadar. Mm. Sounds very familiar. You can't get much closer than that. Mm -hmm. There was this wonderful bit that really helped the decipherment um, uh, where it said, uh, drink water and eat bread. That was it. And so wow. the guy, was, the, Bedrick Rosny, was looking at this text. It says, drink water and eat bread. And, um, you know, the word for eat is et, mm-hmm. like eat, you know, and the word for water is watar. And uh, the word for bread was actually written with a Sumerian sign. But So that's how he was able to um, identify that it was the word for bread. Uh, yeah, so this is how... This is how it began to, it began to be uh, identified. And then it was quite quick mm. before we could work out the grammar and um, establish its relationship to the other Indo-European languages more closely. Mm. And what's come out is that it's actually uh, it actually seems to be quite a bit older than a lot of the other Indo-European languages, or at least that's the common idea today. People dispute this. Um, But the common idea is that um, Hittite, for example, doesn't have a feminine gender, it um, doesn't have um, a perfect tense and stuff like that. And these are all things that all the other Indo-European languages have. So um, it's thought nowadays that Hittite, the other languages might have sort of split off from uh, something that was more like Hittite than um what the other languages are like so greek latin sanskrit all the rest of them germanic and all the rest of them they uh, they have things in common that hittite doesn't have yet
0: mm-hmm.
1: so um so that's that's one idea about it so yeah it it's some people refer to this as indo-hittite rather than indo-european
0: hmm okay so what was it about the 13th century that has scholars believe that this civilization became an empire?
1: Yeah. Well, around the, um, um, 14th century, I'd say is, is where that's really going on. They'd, they'd been trying to expand into, um, Syria for a long time. You know, between Turkey and Syria, you and Iraq, you've got the, uh, Taurus mountains, which are very difficult to cross. So it's like they were kind of stuck in Anatolia, as it were, hmm. which is itself an extremely mountainous area. Hmm. You know, it's, 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 all, it's divided up into geographically quite independent and small units. And it was really an extraordinary achievement for them to be able to achieve some kind of uh, territorial state in Anatolia, because and especially from Central Anatolia, where their capital city is, and that was not done again until the Turkish Republic, you know, in the 1920s, uh, when the capital city was moved to Ankara from Istanbul. So that's the next time since the Hittites that um, a territorial state has been ruled from Central Anatolia, mm-hmm. which just shows how difficult it was for them. So they whenever they basically, whenever they tried to move into northern Syria, um, things would go wrong at home, and they'd have to, they'd have to go back because the, the the local populations of the city states and areas that they'd uh, conquered or uh, annexed in some way at home would start rebelling against them and all the rest of it. And they were constantly having problems like this. And actually, Their capital city, they had to move it several times. It got burnt. Well, according to them, it got burnt down, according to one text anyway. But Mm -hmm. um, actually, the archaeological evidence for that is rather paltry. But okay, so around 1350 BC, they've got this great king called Superliluma, and uh, he manages to have some success in campaigning over in um, in uh, northern Syria, crossing the Taurus and campaigning in northern Syria. And instead of having to rush back and uh, just leave Syria basically, and he did have to rush back, he was constantly having to go back and deal with um, uprisings at home in Anatolia. Instead of just leaving Syria, He establishes one of his sons as a vice-regent at a place called Carchemish, which is on the Euphrates. It's on the border between Turkey and Syria. And on modern-day Turkey and Syria, it's right on the border.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, so he establishes a vice-regency, basically, and that's the really revolutionary thing. So he's got one of his sons who's king and who rules over Syria, essentially. Mm. And um, that, I think is what makes us think now that, uh, that this is something different to what they tried before. There's been several attempts to try to, to move into Syria, as it were, mm-hmm. and take over the economic goodies that uh, um. Um, and trade that was available on the other side of the Taurus. Uh, but they'd all failed to say because of the difficulty of the difficulty of establishing a state in central Anatolia hmm. um which is extremely mountainous you mm-hmm. know uh, the winters are very long um you're not going to be able to move around in the winter for a good four months because there's going to be snow hmm. although we do we do think that uh, that possibly the weather was a little bit better in those days but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's still quite a difficult place to live you know central Anatolia where they where they set up their capital And it just makes you think, why did they do it? Why from there? Obviously, they were really, really attached to the place. Hmm. It's a sort of religious, cultural attachment that they had there. There was also also economic um, factors, I think. Um, Anatolia is uh, really, Turkey, is really, really rich in minerals, you know, copper, um, particularly, tin,
0: Okay.
1: Uh, gold and silver. So they were able to set up their the centre of their empire in what was essentially the middle of a trade route that um, had been in action for uh, several hundred years hmm. in the uh, beginnings or the first half of the second millennium BC. Um, a trade route that focused around a lot of the cities, these independent city-states in Anatolia that you have at the beginning of the second millennium BC. And um, we know about this trade route in particular detail because of, uh, because of the thousands of cuneiform documents, again, that were left behind by Assyrians who okay. came and traded there. And we've got about 23,000 documents from these Assyrian traders who settled in Anatolia and set up kind of um, hmm. business ventures there so we know an awful lot about that and it was obviously quite a rich period but again because of the the it's not as if those traders uh, brought the wealth the wealth existed already beforehand in the early bronze age you know we have palatial settlements rich cities basically because hmm. anatolia is always going to be rich because of its mineral wealth and traders are always going to have gone there because of the mineral wealth. Mm. So the Hittites, when they set up their, their center, their capital city in central Anatolia, I think that's basically what they're doing it on the back of. They're, they're setting up a, uh, an empire um, or the seat of what was good, what was to become an empire, um, on this really quite ri- in the center of this really quite rich mm. trade. Network that um, Anatolia was part of, and yeah, I mean it, it was a difficult process. I think getting all the little city, city states in Anatolia to agree to um, to pay fealty and uh, tribute and stuff like that to the Hittites. Uh, mm-hmm. You've also got they had they had problems with a lot of the population of Anatolia was um, who didn't live in cities was. More mobile, perhaps.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, pastoralist communities, that kind of stuff. There's a particular group called the kaska who seem to have basically been people who, who didn't live in cities and things like that. And they, they are always very troublesome. and seem to appear whenever mm. the Hittites' backs are turned. The um mm. uh, come and burn down their cities and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so it's a, a long process of setting up an empire. Um, that was made very difficult by the terrain, the basic setup of central Anatolia, which although, as it were, destined for wealth due to its huge mineral resources, um, is a very difficult place to set up any kind of territorial unity.
0: Do we have any evidence of them doing trade with the uh, Assyrian region prior to them ruling that region?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's it, you see. So this first half of the second millennium BC, um, before they set up their state, Mm -hmm. you know, that's they they set up their state around 1600 BC. And we have evidence for this trade is going on um, in the area in the 20th century BC.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So uh, 20th century down to say, around 1700 BC. There's plenty of plenty of evidence for that. So yeah, the Assyrians are there. And the other, um, you know, not just Assyrians. It's only these. We only we focus on the Assyrians because they're the ones who left all the documentation. Mm. So we we know about what the Assyrians were doing, um, but they refer in their documents to lots of other people who were in the area from Syria, um, Hurrian-speaking people who came from uh, again, um, well, the sort of a little further inland in northern Syria. Harbour region, um, and this this certainly was mm. a period before the Hittite state was set up. Yeah, before before the uh, Hittite state started ruling over this area. Um, and the Assyrians, though uh, the Assyrian traders, once the network sort of broke down, um, we don't have have that much evidence for them anymore. Mm. But. Um, um, but once Syria appears on the Assyria appears on the kind of international scene as an important um, player as part of the club of great powers, then the Hittites are in contact with, with them, of course, mm. and there's all sorts of exchanges going on.
0: Is there any evidence yeah. of the Hittites um, doing trade and having other relations, um, whether amicable or confrontational with the Mycenaean Greeks?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um so on the one hand, uh there's a number of objects that were found in Mycenaean Greece, mm. such as seals, things like that, that um are Hittite. Mm. Or and there's a number of other um things that are found at Hatchus, very few though, very few um that are mycenaean so we've got actual objects like for example there's this pot sherd that's got a mycenaean warrior on it at Hattusa, but there's very few where where you've got lots of mycenaean presence is Mm. in along the western anatolian coastal strip okay so you know Izmir, that kind of area um and all down there there's lots of mycenaean pottery um And obviously the Mycenaeans had uh, a very important post or outpost, let's say, at um, Miletus, uh, which is down um, um, south of Izmir, Mm -hmm. between Izmir and Bodrum, isn't it? And um, so Miletus, uh, which the Hittites called Milawanda, by the way, um, at Miletus, they had this, this very important outpost. It's unclear how much they were actually settled uh, inland, but there are plenty of contacts going on. So, Western Anatolia itself, archaeologically speaking, has quite a different culture, a material culture to, um, to the uh, Hittite material culture mm. or Central Anatolian. Material culture. So we think of it as kind of a different cultural region, but the Hittites write about it a lot in their historical documents. So we know that there must have been contacts in Western Anatolia, Mm. um, and they claim to have ruled over Western Anatolia and done a lot of stuff down there. And they're always talking about campaigns going down there. Now, as part of these campaigns, and as part of this military activity that they do in Western Anatolia, they do come into contact with uh, the Mycenaeans or what we think of the Mycenaeans. And they call the Mycenaeans um, the people of Achiawa, mm. which certain some scholars have associated with the Achaeans who are mentioned in Homer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay? So mm-hmm. we've got a good bunch of documents that mention this place called Achiawa, And there's uh, some personal names and stuff like that as well of Akiyawan people who um, can be mm. analysed as Mycenaean Greek. So there's this character that's written in Hittite called Tawagalawa and people think that's Etewoklewes, which would be Greek Etiocles, who's, um, you know, uh, where's he from? Thebes, I think. And um there's a couple of these. Uh, So you've got a um, Ataricia, who people think is Atreus. Okay. So you get a whole bunch of these names in cuneiform documents in Hittite. Interesting. um, That can be linked to Mycenaean names. Whether they're the same names or not is another issue. Now that's a different thing to saying that there's big trade going on. The fact that you've got contacts between the elites or whatever um let's say foreign policy contacts is slightly different to saying that, you know, you've got a massive trade going on. There doesn't mm-hmm. seem to have been a huge trade between central Anatolia and the Hittites based there and Mycenae. Mm-hmm. It's more at the kind of elite level of foreign diplomacy. So um the Mycenaeans are obviously very important for what's going on in Western Anatolia. And we can tell from these Akiawa documents that they're, they're always trying to interfere, basically. And they, mm. the Western Anatolian peoples obviously didn't like having the Hittites ruling over them too much. And um, they're always rebelling. Mm. And uh, there's this one exchange, for example, this, this long document called the Tawagalawa letter, which um, I participated in uh, doing a new edition of recently, um, this very long document that is addressed by a Hittite king in the 13th century BC to an unnamed king of Akiyawa Mm -hmm. and he's basically accusing him throughout this long letter of uh, of giving protection to a character who is basically a pirate who keeps coming and raiding Hittite towns or towns that at least have Hittite protection and um, and burning them down and that kind of stuff and this this character then retreats uh, to Akiawa, which must be somewhere like one of the Greek islands or something like that mm. and um, and is able to attack the Hittite or to attack Western Anatolia from there and It's possible that he was one of the um, royal line. Of Western Anatolian kings that the Hittites had to get rid of um, in order to uh, in order to establish some kind of control in the area political control at least
0: hm it's interesting so in Homer's Iliad when he's speaking about the um, people during the Trojan War on the um, peninsula of anatolia uh, um, presumed um, is it believed that what Homer's writing about is the Hittites people?
1: Yeah. Interesting question. Um, well, it's, um, it's a bit, it's a little bit difficult. I mean, I think what we've got is one of the big questions is why are the Hittites not mentioned by Homer? Cause he's obviously he's mm-hmm. Homer's pretending to be talking about the Mycenaean period, mm-hmm. you know, um, at least that's what we associate it with. Mm-hmm. Um, and already by the time of Homer, which is what? I don't know, 800 or something like that. BC, believed. the Hittites have been forgotten about entirely. If they were if they were part of this in the first place. Hmm. So we've got a Hittite treaty with a place called Willusa. Now, Willusa is associated by many scholars with Wilion, which is the Homeric one of the Homeric names for Troy. Hmm. And um, we have this treaty between the king of Willusa, who's called Alexandu, which sounds a little bit like Alexander, um, you know, uh, of the Iliad, the other name of Paris, and the Hittite king. Um, So, and that's that's a really interesting treaty. We've got loads of Hittite treaties because this was basically how, this was basically their reaction to... um, uh, trying to build an empire or territorial state in this very difficult geographical ter- terrain was to establish treaties with everyone mm-hmm. so it became like a kind of federation um rather than an empire but anyway so that we've got a treaty with him we've got numerous other treaties with other people down the uh down the western coast of anatolia and um These people have the same names. It's very unlikely that they're the people who are actually being referred to by Homer, but it shows that there's, that's, that there's, there's, some kind of mm. contact and we've got letters that get sent between Akiyawa and, uh, and the Hittites as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And then in this Tawagalawa letter, well, we call it a letter. It's not really a letter or whatever, but it's in it. It's, it's more like an indictment, uh, a series of accusations, mm. um, in this Tawagalawa letter, so-called Tawagalawa letter, they have, um, there's one bit at the end of it where the Hittite king says, um, well, you and me, we're brothers because all the great kings are brothers. They always refer to each other as brothers, like right? the Babylonian king, the Assyrian king, the Egyptian pharaoh and the Hittite great king. They all refer to each other as brothers. And in this letter, he's saying to um the Yahweh king, you're a great king too. You know, you can be one of us and you're my brother, okay? Hmm. And we're brothers now and we're friends. But, you know, there was this time in the past when it was a bit different. And there was this matter of Willusa. And that's all over now. I was young then, hmm. he says. And that's it. And then you think, are they hmm. referring to the Trojan War? Mm-hmm. You know, this yeah. is. <laughs> or something just before it or whatever. So this letter was written or indictment was written uh, let's say mid 13th century around 1250 1240 so probably quite a bit before the, the what archaeologists tend to think was the uh, the time of the fall of troy but you mm-hmm. know homer's writing hundreds of years later mm-hmm. so his our documents are actually from that time or almost that time or maybe 50 50, uh, 30 years out or something like that you know from the from the fall of Troy that people think might have been the inspiration for, uh, for Homer's narrative of the fall of Troy-hmm so he's written he's writing hundreds of years later so it, it's very interesting to compare the two
0: That's a very uh, very fascinating piece of literature found. What do we know about the end of the Hittite civilization?
1: Yeah, good question again. um, It's really difficult. Basically, the capital city seems to have been evacuated, and then it seems to have got burnt down later. Mm -hmm. But they seem to have evacuated the capital city. We have plenty of reports going on. So the Egyptians talk about these sea peoples who are supposed to be invading um, the... Levantine coast and they say that uh, the Egyptian king Ramesses III talks about um, how no one could stand up to them and all the kingdoms fell down and uh, the Egyptians were the only ones who were able to stand up to them and that kind of stuff. Absolute propaganda. What the archaeology is showing Mm. us at the moment. So yeah and scholars have thought that these sea peoples and the sort of invading migrant hordes or whatever uh, were responsible for... um, Uh, the destruction of the not only the uh, Hittite civilization but various other Bronze Age Mm -hmm. states at the time Um, but it does turn out that this Egyptian propaganda was precisely that it's just trying to aggrandize the uh, Egyptian situation and the the um, uh, aggrandize the Egyptian king basically and um, a number of the places that he mentions as having been destroyed, we now know from archaeology they weren't destroyed, in fact. Mm. So Carchemish, for example, this place I mentioned earlier where the vice regency was on the Euphrates, that continues without being destroyed. So there's a bit of, let's say, continuity in Hittite rule going on in northern Syria Mm -hmm. um, at this place, Carchemish. And then that becomes a very important place in the Iron Age until it gets taken over by the Assyrians in Seven seventeen BC um, so you know you've got several hundred years until Carchemish is kind of like assumed into the assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. but um, why the central Anatolian kingdom or empire center fell apart though, we just don't know, but mm-hmm. it does seem to have fallen apart and it seems to have fallen apart very drastically, as I say. The capital city seems to have been evacuated and then it got later burnt down. We don't know where they went. A number of the other sort of cities in central Anatolia, the main cities, seem to get evacuated. Some of them get burnt down, absolutely. Um, Some of them seem to have met a violent end. Um, But it's unclear whether this is to do with, as it were, outside invaders. Mm. It's actually very unlikely to be to do with outside invaders and more just an economic situation that has deteriorated so badly that they are unable to keep this extremely difficult and complex uh, geographical terrain together and i think it was always a wonder and a miracle that the hittite state existed in the first place because mm. you have this extraordinarily difficult terrain as, I, as i've said that is divided up by extremely mountainous areas um, and that uh, is very difficult to organise into any kind of unified state so mm. the question I think we should be asking is how did they manage to keep a unified state at all in in that place and you know mm. that's the amazing achievement they made um, so we should be less surprised about the fact that eventually it fell apart there were just too many strains on the system. Um, mm-hmm. Possibly, you know, there might have been some famine, there might have been some bad uh, harvests and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But generally, I think, uh, yeah, they, 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 uh, the system was overstrained, and they were unable to keep that state going in Central Anatolia.
0: Okay. And what so da- I say?
1: The Iron Age. Yep.
0: What date range was that presumed to be? When, it, when, when things when start ended, falling apart?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, during the whole of the 13th century. Okay. So, um, you know, they, they have their, their, their high point is like the Battle of Kadesh when, you know, they fight against the Egyptians around 1275 or so. Yeah. But pretty soon after that, things start falling apart. Um, mm-hmm. So let's say around... Um, well, okay, they move their capital to southwestern Anatolia. That's one thing they do because that seems to be where the economic center has moved and then they move it back again but the population never really moves back to Hattusa so around 1200 hmm. between 1200 and 1180 that's when we think Hattusa is being deserted um A yeah.
0: similar time to when it's believed the Mycenaean uh greek yeah. region fell as well right
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm sure that what we're dealing with are large, larger economic processes that are going on, that um, it's not just one civilization that's falling apart. It's multiple civilizations and states mm-hmm. and uh, trade networks that are finding it more difficult to produce wealth. Mm-hmm. And there might be droughts happening and that kind of stuff, um, but I think the Hittite civilization is going to have been particularly affected by this because of the and the difficulty Mm. of building a state there in the first place but yeah you're absolutely right what we see is an economic downturn and that economic downturn encourages things like um large refugee movements um encourages things like people who live on the countryside attacking the people who live in the city because they think they can get some some wealth out of them and that kind of stuff Mm encourages a general deterioration of the situation that's happening over a large area.
0: This has been a terrific conversation Mark. Thank you for joining the show.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Mm.
0: If you wish to pick up uh, any of Mark's books on the topic that I'd mentioned in the prelude, uh, Hittite Logograms and Hittite Scholarship and uh, Hittite Landscape and Geography, I'll drop links to both of those books in the show notes on the associated sub page to this episode at Ithacabound.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Mark and everyone listening, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now.